Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Today, I'm joined by my heritage colleague, John Michael Seibler. Hey, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thanks for coming once again. So the Supreme Court is back after a two-week break. The court recently granted cert in three new cases. And let me tell you, it's an exciting bunch. First up, we have Return Mail, Inc. versus U.S. Postal Service. And the question is whether the government is a person who may petition to institute review proceedings under the Leahy Smith America Invents Act. Riveting, I know. And then we have Mission Product Holding uh, versus Tempnology. Not technology, it's Tempnology. I thought it was a typo when I first saw it. And the question there is whether under the bankruptcy code, a debtor licensor's rejection of a license agreement terminates rights of the licensee that would survive the licensor's breach under applicable non-bankruptcy law. You know, someone somewhere is very interested in that case. (laughs) That Uh, would not be me. (laughs) But finally, there's United States against Haymond, a case that involves supervised release after imprisonment. It asks whether the Tenth Circuit erred in holding unconstitutional and unenforceable the portions of a statute, 18 U.S.C. Section 3583K, that required the district court to revoke this respondent's 10-year term of supervised release and to impose five years of re-imprisonment following a finding by preponderance of the evidence that the respondent violated the conditions of his release by knowingly possessing child pornography. So there you have it. There you have it. But the court also announced an exciting bit of news this week, the new circuit court assignments. Each justice is responsible for emergency appeals for their respective circuits. The biggest change is Justice Kagan taking over the Ninth Circuit, which Roberts had had since Kennedy's retirement. Sotomayor is picking up the Sixth Circuit, and Kavanaugh gets the Seventh Circuit, both of which Kagan previously had. In other SCOTUS news, retired Justice Sandra Day O'Connor has officially withdrawn from public life. In a letter the court issued last week, she explained that she has been diagnosed with the early stages of dementia, and she urged others to take up her mantle of advancing civic engagement. Here's a little snippet from her letter, which I thought was, was very nice. We need to find ways to get people, young and old, more involved in their communities and in their government. As my three sons are tired of hearing me say, it's not enough to understand, you've got to do something. There is no more important work than deepening young people's engagement in our nation. And I agree with her wholeheartedly. I concur. (laughs) I concur. Very nice and timely letter. So, JM, what's the other O'Connor news? The juicy O'Connor news. Yeah. Yeah, so this week Nina Totenberg reported to NPR that in the early 1950s, Chief Justice William Rehnquist actually asked a Stanford Law School classmate to marry him. And that classmate was Sandra Day. Uh, After Rehnquist graduated a semester early and went to D.C. to clerk at the Supreme Court, he wrote a letter to her asking, quote, to be specific, Sandy, will you marry me this summer? (laughs) I guess it would be, to be specific, Sandy. (laughs) That deep Rehnquist voice. Yeah. Uh, So this... Uh, reveal came out of a new book by Evan Thomas that's set to be published in March 2019, uh, who came across the letter in O'Connor's correspondence while doing his research. And, you know, I, I read that uh, they had dated earlier in law school and they, they actually broke up, but they still remained study buddies. And they, uh, they actually entered a moot court competition together and they came in second place. Good team. Yeah. So moving on, uh, the Supreme Court heard several oral arguments this week. Uh, one of the cases is called Frank v. Gauss, and this is dealing with Cypre settlements in class action cases. 
So a Cypre settlement is where a third party receives the bulk of settlement funds instead of the actual injured party uh, if it would be impractical or impossible to pay the injured party. So in this case, there was an estimated class of 129 million individuals. Uh, so it, the lower court found that it would be impractical to try to pay 129 million individuals. So after the argument, it seems like a number of justices are skeptical about this practice, which led to more than $5 million of an $8 million settlement with Google going to organizations Google already donated to and also to the law schools that the class attorneys graduated from. Uh, there were, however, a number of questions about whether the petitioner has standing. Uh, but speaking of the petitioner, this was a rare case when the named petitioner actually argued the case before the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's not very common, is it? It is not. So Ted Frank is the Frank in Frank v. Gauss, and he's a lawyer who's been working on class action reforms for a number of years, most recently tackling Cypre settlements. And I believe the last time a named plaintiff argued his case was Michael Newdow argued a case challenging the inclusion of under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, and that was in the early 2000s. Interesting case. Yeah. Uh, there was also an interesting development in a oral argument this week uh, in Washington State Department of Licensing against Cougar Den Incorporated, not necessarily because of the issue, which was <laughs> whether the Akama Treaty of 1855 creates a right for tribal members to avoid state taxes on off-reservation commercial activities that make up use of public highways. But it was interesting because it highlighted an interesting little Supreme Court rule about headdress. A Yakama Nation Tribal Council chairman was actually barred from entering the U.S. Supreme Court because he insisted on wearing a full traditional tribal regalia, including a feathered headdress. A rather large feather headdress. <laughs> yes. And so the court had to explain, an official had to explain to him, that they don't want people to, quote, draw attention to a particular case or a particular litigant in the case so that the court is not influenced by that, close quote. And they said that they had already told this particular gentleman that he would not be allowed to enter the court ahead of time before he showed up that day uh, if he was wearing the headdress because of a court rule that bars uh, head coverings unless they're worn for religious or medical reasons. So a, a case that probably wouldn't have made headlines otherwise uh, caught, caught at least a few people's eyes. So moving on, I recently spoke with Tom Goldstein. Tom Goldstein is a partner at Goldstein & Russell and the co-founder of SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Tom. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So let's start with your Supreme Court arguments. You've argued 42 cases, which is quite a few. Uh, what are some of the most memorable arguments? I guess some of the biggest cases or the ones that really stick out in my mind have involved the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment. Uh, some difficult questions involving the right to privacy in particular and also the extent to which the First Amendment can be used to stop uh, excessive government regulation. And those have been really, you know, questions that the court has been confronting a lot recently, uh, and have been uh, ones that really are are great puzzles because the the Constitution is written in such broad terms that it doesn't provide any really concrete answers, and the court doesn't necessarily split on the kind of classical ideological lines. So I'm sure your first argument was pretty nerve wracking, mm -hmm. but do you still get nervous when you get up before the justices? You know, it's really an interesting thing because it's basically the only thing that I've ever done. Practice in front of the court, it's taken up like 80% of my time since I, <laughs> I started. I don't get nervous. I think I'd be a better lawyer if I got nervous because nerves can really make you work even harder to prepare. <laughs> um, but it's been, it's you know, it's 
kind of a comfortable place for me, uh, having seen them a bunch and having gotten to do this a decent number of times. And they do a lot to try and make you feel at home. Mm -hmm. It's a place where you come in and there's a briefing and the justices for all the talk of them, you know, being mean or asking a ton of questions are actually genuinely interested in having a conversation. So they try and make it as non-nerve-wracking as they can. <laughs> so do you have any rituals or traditions before your oral arguments? You know, there are some some lawyers who will mm-hmm. eat four bananas to fuel <laughs> up or some have a, you know, a particular song they like to listen to. <laughs> you know, I uh, don't have a, a particular ritual. I do tend in the last couple of days to kind of segregate myself and separate myself. So I'll even... If it's a big enough case, you know, stay in a hotel, even though I live here in Washington, to try and really, really focus a lot. The other thing I tend to do is prepare up until the last second. There are a lot of people who really find it better to stop the day before, put their pen down, relax, go see a movie, and get their head on straight. And, you know, I'll be, if we're the second argument uh, in a, uh, on a day, I'll still be preparing during the first one. <laughs> So you've handled cases involving everything from free speech to arbitration to habeas corpus. Is there a particular area of the law that you really enjoy? Probably the First Amendment uh, because – and the First Amendment free speech cases in particular uh, because it has so many implications. There are political implications. There are social implications. There are regulatory implications. And understanding the scope and breadth of the First Amendment is is fascinating and it's you know evolving with technology and the internet. Uh, the justices seem to find it very interesting. It's a never-ending set of problems um, and it seems like you're always still learning. The other thing I'd say is I've been doing more and more IP type cases. So patent law has been pretty interesting uh, and the justices seem to appreciate having people in there with some experience who can help them figure some of these problems out which are so complicated. And I'm doing a big, big, big internet uh, copyright case right now, and it's very, very interesting. Yeah, there certainly seems to be no shortage of First Amendment or patent mm-hmm. cases heading to uh, the Supreme Court. Yeah. So you built your law pra- practice from the ground up, working out of your laundry room, cold calling potential clients. And today your firm has the highest rate of getting the court to take your cases than any other firm. So I think it's safe to say that you've changed the business of <laughs> Supreme Court advocacy. What's the secret to your success? Well, it's happened in a couple of different stages. The first stage is, of course, to cheat. Um, <laughs> and that is – by that I mean to – when I started out, which would have been around 1998, um, what I did is I looked for cases that I thought the Supreme Court would take because they involved conflict in the circuits. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to those lawyers and for the first several cases just agreed to do them for free. And so that was real self-selection. That was not writing some brilliant cert petition that persuaded the justices to take a case that they otherwise might not. It was you know, persuading the lawyers in the case that they ought to take their case up and let me work on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was relatively easy work. Uh, it was shooting fish in a barrel because at the time, the Supreme Court bar was – to the extent it even existed – was much more reticent to kind of reach out for cases. You're talking about giants of the bar like John Roberts, and they were very much used to cases coming to them. Mm -hmm. And it was, to be honest, kind of looked down on to try and pursue the cases. Now the world is totally different. All of these firms have Supreme Court practices, and they are aggressively chasing cases. Also, you know, I started um, clinics at uh, Stanford Law School with Pam Carlin and then at Harvard Law School. And so all these clinics exist now at different law schools and they uh, go after the cases. Um, 
after that, after kind of getting settled in, it really has been just a, um, a, a an effort to pay enormous attention to what it is that the justices are interested in mm-hmm. when they take cases. Uh, and trying to tackle harder cases that don't involve clean circuit conflicts, but nonetheless persuading the court that the issue is so important that they're the only ones who can resolve it. So your path to becoming a top Supreme Court litigator didn't exactly follow the mold of so many others who you know, went to Harvard or Yale for law school, then on to a Supreme Court clerkship, uh, possibly service in the SG's office, working at a white shoe law firm. So what advice would you give to would-be SCOTUS litigators? Well, I think there are two things that you have to think about. One is, you know, I went to American University's Law School, which was just perfect for me. I got a lot of attention. Uh, I got to do a lot of really interesting things. But don't let anybody tell you that because you didn't go to law school A or B that you're just not going to have a certain set of opportunities. When I was at AU and I applied for clerkships, I didn't get any clerkship interviews, but I had a recommender who really went to bat for me. And so too with the Supreme Court. If I had really asked around a lot and asked whether it was possible to build the practice, people would have said, no, honestly, that's a little bit silly and that's not going to (laughs) happen. I just had the gumption or stupidity not to ask anybody and I just did it, Uh, decided I wanted to be a Supreme Court litigator. And so I think the broader lesson doesn't have to be about the Supreme Court. It's about whatever you want to do is just if you love something and I loved the Supreme Court, go out and do it and volunteer your time and make yourself uh, get the exposure and experiences that will let you build a practice. Uh, a lot of it really is doing things for free uh, because people <laughs> really do appreciate free help. In terms of like really practical advice for someone who wants to build a practice right now, probably two things. The first is you're going to get your best experience in the government. And if you're not somebody who you know, clerked at the court, um, it's going to be hard to get a job in the U.S. Solicitor General's office. But state solicitors general uh, do have a lot of interesting work at the Supreme Court, and there's a lot of good things that you can get exposure to. And there are lots of different parts of the United States government that have appellate sections, the tax division, you know, all kinds of different uh, parts of the executive branch litigate cases in the courts of appeals. You can get really good appellate experience. If you're going to be in private practice and you want to build a Supreme Court practice, it's hard because a lot of people are chasing after these cases, but you mm-hmm. just have to commit yourself to it and look for opportunities and go after them and be relentless about it. Uh, you know, even back in the day when I started doing this, I got turned down a lot, and you mm-hmm. just have to be comfortable with that happening. That's fine. <laughs> you know, you know, you you you're not going to get somebody to say yes if you don't ask. Um, and if you really, really, really love it, you will have the persistence that's required. So turning to the blog, Mm. you and your wife, the fabulous Amy Mm -hmm. Howe, started SCOTUS Blog together, and you initially started it to help get clients for your firm, Uh, but then it took on a life of its own. At what point did you realize that the blog was going to be a lot bigger than just advertising for your firm? Or better. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think it was uh, several years in, we uh, hired Lyle Denniston to be the reporter for the blog, and Lyle brought with him a real tradition of being a newsman Mm -hmm. uh, and all of the principles that come with journalism. And that really um, had a big influence on the trajectory of the blog. And we decided to treat it as a real neutral news organization. It had become apparent by then that, you know, people who are some general counsel who wants to take their bet the company case to the Supreme Court doesn't just go, oh, get me the guy with the blog uh, <laughs> and hire on that basis. Uh, so it it became in relatively short order within a few years 
much more of just a public service. And it has benefited the firm. It's true. Um, even though the blog has unbelievably strong policies about conflicts of interest and not reporting on the firm's cases or, mm-hmm. you know, only discussing them in the most purely objective terms, uh, real limits on who can write about my cases and it can't be anybody who reports to me. Nonetheless, the public and lawyers are appreciative of the blog and do give me undue credit for whatever good happens on it. It's basically a situation where if something bad happens on the blog, you should blame me. But if something good happens, you should give credit to Amy and Edith and the the other (laughs) members of the staff. So what have been some of the highlights in 16 years of SCOTUS blog? Uh, Our biggest day was definitely the Obamacare decision where we had this infamous situation in which uh, CNN and Fox misreported the outcome Mm -hmm. of the case. Um, You know, we had a million people on the blog simultaneously and that was a thing and people were trying to hack the blog and all these sorts of things. And, the you know, the White House was very dependent on the blog and getting information to the president. So that was really, really, really exciting. And our work on that day, I think, was really responsible for us winning the Peabody and some other awards. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, we, the Supreme Court's website went down that day yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. The court had said, <laughs> you know, we don't need any help distributing the opinion because we have this fancy thing called a website <laughs> which uh, didn't work because everybody in the world kept hitting refresh, refresh, refresh. Yeah. And so it was getting, you know, tens of thousands of hits a second. Um, and they've, you know, upgraded their system since then. The um, other and other, there have been other highlights for us. The president, uh, President Obama wrote for the blog <coughs> about the Garland nomination. That was really right. nice. And we've had uh, the majority leader and uh, a lot of the leadership of the Senate Judiciary Committee write. And so I think we've uh, become recognized as a place where we really will try very hard to be balanced, where we've got, you know, if we are having a senior senator from one side, we're going to have him from the other side, mm-hmm. uh, where we have um, symposia on big cases, you're going to have pieces from both sides. And we've been very, very lucky because, you know, so many people do read the blog now that, uh, we have really great authors. We're very, very fortunate. You know, the Harvard Law Review, for all its incredible importance, you know, may have 5,000 subscribers or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, we can have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people visit the blog on any given day. So this might be a little off, off topic, but I think our listeners <laughs> would, would want to know, how did you and Amy meet? Uh, Amy and I met as college freshmen. She was a good college student and I was something else. Uh, <laughs> and so... Uh, We were in the same dorm, and uh, I had the intelligence to recognize that what I should do is take all of her classes and follow her around like a puppy dog. And it it did work out well for me in the end. And so, you know, we've been together ever since then uh, in 19, excuse me, 1988. uh, And uh, have two kids, and we have a third kid in the blog (laughs) and two dogs. So, one final question something we ask every guest Mm. at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Well, I've had the opportunity to talk to you know a bunch of them. And I will say in terms of the actual conversations that I've had, uh, Justice Thomas is definitely the person that you want to have a conversation mm-hmm. with. He's just such an intriguing, open, garrulous, fun, interested and interesting guy People all just have a terrible misimpression of him, mm-hmm. including because he doesn't talk at oral argument. I also, <laughs> you know, back when I was a law student uh, and interning for Nina Totenberg, uh, got to talk with Justice Brennan. Uh, I guess if, you know, I would – maybe it's a cop-out, but the great John Marshall, I would really want to understand 
what was going on back in the day mm-hmm. when the country was being founded and what the and when the court was really being established. It matters tremendously to me what was originally intended by the Constitution. And uh, if you could have a, you know, you could have a conversation with him, that would be a great thing. And the nice thing about oral argument, in fact, at the Supreme Court is you basically are having a conversation with the justices. They know so much about the cases. It's really interesting to get a genuine sense of mm-hmm. their views. Uh, and they're arguing the case through you to each other. So it's a great process. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds great. Thank you so much for oh, joining thank me. Thank you for having me. So we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Halloween edition. And this time, I'm going to try to stump Elizabeth. The tables have turned. Are you ready? I am pumped. Bring it on. Okay. (laughs) Who is the only justice who has said Happy Halloween from the bench? Is it a current justice? No. Oh. The only justice who has said Happy Halloween from the bench. Oh, man. Um, I hope this wasn't supposed to be the the uh, softball question. You, you warned me <laughs> there would be a softball. <laughs> um, let's go with, why don't we go with um, Byron Wizard White? Oh, uh, a very good pick, but incorrect. It was actually Antonin Scalia. Oh, oh man. And okay, what, what was the case? Fo- well, follow up. Do you know what prompted him to say that? Um. Was this when the a light bulb exploded in the courtroom? Exactly oh, right. There you go. Man, I redeemed myself a little there bit. You, yes. So this was an oral argument in the case of Central Virginia Community College against Cats in 2006. When on Halloween, uh, as you said, a light bulb blew out uh, and made a loud gunshot type of sound. Uh, <laughs> Scalia quickly said, light bulb went out. And Roberts responded, it's a trick they play on new chief justices all the time. <laughs> So, oh, that's good. Next set of questions. Okay. What case involved a baker who refused to sell cakes celebrating Halloween? Well, in the masterpiece case from last term, Jack Phillips, I mean, it, the case dealt with he wouldn't make a cake for a same sex wedding, but he also wouldn't make Halloween cakes and he wouldn't make. Cakes that had alcohol in them or profanity written on them. So I'm going to go with Masterpiece. Nailed it. (laughs) Okay, that was the softball. That was the softball. (laughs) And now here comes the curveball. Oh, boy. Here we go. In what case did two justices ask at oral argument whether a village of Stratton, Ohio ordinance required trick-or-treaters to get a permit to go trick-or-treating? Two justices in... A case from Stratton, Ohio, whether they'd need a permit. Was this a, could you give me like a decade? Was this in the last decade? Yes. It okay. was in 2002. 2002. Okay, that helps. Um, okay, let's see. So that knocks out like half of the court because they mm-hmm. weren't there yet. Um, I'm going to go with... Um, I'm going to go with Scalia and Kennedy. Oh. Did I get them both wrong? No. Well, we've already talked about one. Scalia? No. Wait, who have we talked about? We talked about Kennedy? Oh, Rehnquist. Rehnquist. <laughs> Closer, but still, still no, uh, not cigar, but no, no trick or treat. All uh, right. So Sandra Day O'Connor and John Paul Stevens both asked 
in the case of Watchtower <laughs> Bible and Track Society of New York against Village of Stratton, whether or not trick-or-treaters would need a permit because of a village ordinance that required canvassers to get permission from the mayor to go door-to-door canvassing. So I wonder what, what happened, how the case was resolved. Do the trick-or-treaters need, need an ordinance? <laughs> we can look it up and tweet it out after the show. We will tweet it out after the show. <laughs> Is that it? That's it. Our, You're well, done. You, know, you did pretty good. I, uh, I did okay, but it's fun being on, on this side, not always being the, the Alex Trebek, but getting to be in the hot seat. Yeah, you did good being in the hot seat for the first time. <laughs> well, thanks for joining me again this week, JM. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. And please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. You can also email us at scotus101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.